Hey, everybody, and welcome back to the Blister Podcast. I'm Jonathan Ellsworth, the founder of Blister, and you can check out everything we're doing and reviewing over at blisterreview.com. Okay, our guest today is Cam Smith, who is a repeat winner of the Grand Traverse, which is a point-to-point ski race from Crested Butte to Aspen. Now, at the Grand Traverse, racers travel 40 miles across the Elk Mountain Range, climbing over 6,800 vertical feet, and to ensure competitor safety, racers must have a partner, they must carry mandatory gear, and they must begin the race at midnight when avalanche hazard is decreased. Now, starting just after midnight this past Saturday night, or I guess technically Sunday morning at like 12.10 a.m., Cam and his race partner Tom Goth set a new course record with a time of six hours and six minutes, which is crazy. Many truly badass people call the Grand Traverse the hardest thing they've ever done, and so Cam's blazing time here is absolutely remarkable. But wait, there's more. Cam is also a repeat winner of the Triple Crown of the Grand Traverse, which is awarded to the person that has the lowest combined time across the Grand Traverse ski race, the Grand Traverse bike race, and the Grand Traverse run. So in this conversation, I asked Cam to fill us in on his record-setting night, and we also talk about skiing versus schemo. We talk about Cam's World Cup schemo goals and how he specifically trains for skiing and for mountain running and mountain biking. And if you'd like to learn more about Cam's backstory, I talked with Cam about a year and a half ago over on our Off the Couch podcast about that background of his and more. So I'd encourage you to check that out. It's episode number 21 of Off the Couch, and we'll include links to the show notes in this episode. And so let's go ahead and get to my conversation with Cam Smith, which we had in Blister headquarters about 48 hours after his record-setting effort. Here we go. All right. Well, I am very happy to be here with Cam Smith once again in Blister headquarters. Cam, how are you? I'm great, Jonathan. I'm uh, glad to see your smiling face again. (laughs) Well, of course we had to have you back because you just did again that thing you do which is just win the Grand Traverse. Apparently, this is what you were born to do. I don't know. Do you have any thoughts on this? Um, I like this race a lot. This is kind of what got me into mountain sports in the first place was like moving to the Gunnison Valley and my sister is like, you're going to do this thing called the Grand Traverse with me. And I remember actually in 2014, I was still in high school as a senior and I came out to Colorado from Illinois to watch my sister do the Grand Traverse. And Wisconsin was playing in the Elite Eight of March Madness. And I was like, oh, Wisconsin's going to make the Final Four. So exciting. And I wanted to watch that instead of go to the GT start line. (laughs) So there was no like uh, match made in the cosmos of me and the Grand Traverse if I preferred to watch a basketball game (laughs) at one point. But at some point, I figured out that I really like doing this stuff. And I guess that's why I keep finding myself here. (laughs) That's good. That really could have changed the whole course of your life if you would have like just watched that wisconsin game yeah (laughs) and maybe every year you're just still you know just watching the 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 ncaa tournament wow it's that's a hard world to imagine but okay so we should say 
you and I did record an off the couch podcast conversation where we do talk about the Grand Traverse a bit and some of your background. But for those who might not be familiar, talk about this Grand Traverse race. There's a couple of different elements to it, right? So fill, fill people in on exactly what we're talking about here. Yeah. So the Grand Traverse started in 1998. It's just like an idea hatched by some Crested Butte locals to do a ski race from Crested Butte to Aspen. And so they started to like look at routes and figure out how they wanted to do it. And there's all kinds of ways to go from Crested Butte to Aspen, but most of them involve like driving the first five miles and being driven the last five miles. So we're trying to find out a way to actually link Crested Butte proper to Aspen proper for a winter ski race. And so they figured out this route over Star and Taylor Passes. And it originally was just like an idea of something that locals would probably do every year. And it's kind of exploded into this big <laughs> annual ordeal, but... It's a 40-mile race starting at midnight because you want to get up and over all the avalanche terrain before the warm sun hits it in the March afternoon weather. And uh, yeah, so it's been running for 23 years now and gotten bigger and bigger every year. And it's evolved into from like a Nordic survival race to like a the gear changed to schemo and people got faster and faster and figured it out more and more and they hatched the idea to do a run and a mountain bike component to it in the, over Labor Day. So now there's the triple crown of the Grand Traverse and it's just evolved a little by little for those last 20 plus years, I think. Okay. This is where I need you to not be humble. We just need facts, right? This triple crown thing, you know about the triple crown. I know about it. Yes. <laughs> and I'll share facts if, if prodded. Please, please <laughs> yeah. share, please share facts. Um, because what we, what we just did was the kind of the, I guess we're going to call it the schemo side. Are we calling it schemo? No one's, no one's calling we'll this. We'll call it the ski. Let's the say ski. the Grand Traverse ski. Okay. Yeah. We don't like schemo. Uh, we like schemo, but it's just like, nobody really knows what you're talking about when you're like, oh, my schemo race was last weekend. So like, oh, I did the ski thing. Okay. Where I went uphill and downhill. <laughs> okay. I like that. You know, on Off the Couch, we've had this kind of ongoing question, whether it's called Nordic skiing versus cross country skiing. Yeah. I heard yeah. Simi's yeah. episode about that. Yeah. Simi, yeah. Simi, feels, Simi feels very strongly that it is yeah. cross country skiing. Yeah. And uh, anyway, so, okay. It is not, we're not calling this ski mode. This is the ski race. Well, I'll, yeah, it's, so I'm going to be less black and white than Simi. Okay. And I'll say that it's situational. So if like you put me in like a ski mode world cup situation, then I'll throw around my ski mode word. Yeah. But if I'm like, oh, like Cam, like this is my mom. Like tell her about that thing that you do. Yeah. Like, oh, so we, we go skiing. Yeah. And I don't want to make it more complicated than it is. Gotcha. It's, so it's I'll a, be situational with yeah, it. Situational, very yeah. user-friendly. Yes. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Shout out to Simi, by the way, who recently, you know, wrapped up a pretty stellar career. And yeah. Yeah. We need to get him back on the show too and ask how, I don't know, post-race life is finding him at this point. Yeah. Well, let's see if we can get him to come do the Grand Traverse and then do an episode after that. That'd be a good double reason to have him on. Well, it, did you just invite a competitor or are you going to team up here? Um, I don't know. We'll see. <laughs> I, I've heard rumblings of like, yeah. oh, Simi's going to do the GT yeah. this year. So we should see it one year. Let's we do should. It. Yeah. Simi, you've been called out. You got to stop avoiding us. <laughs> so, okay. So the Triple Crown, 
So there is the ski portion of this event. There is the bike and there is the run. And then a triple crown winner is declared. You have done this a few times. Yeah. True. And fact, true fact. Yeah. <clears throat> so tell us a little bit about that. One, how does like the scoring or stuff for that work on the triple and then talk about your talk about your crowns when did you when did you <laughs> when did you win the triple when did when were you given these crowns well let's see so it it's a combined time for all three so there's no like weird placing or points or anything it's like okay how long cumulatively did it take you to do the ski the run and the mountain bike and the first one was maybe 2014 or 2015 i did my first in 2018 so I had won the ski that year. I surprised myself and won the run because it was the first ultra marathon or any actually marathon at all that I had ever done. And then did well enough in the bike the day after to win. So then I, so I guess I won it in 2018, won it again in 2019, a little bit faster. In 2020, there was no ski because that would have been a March. Uh, so there was no triple crown last year. And then we just had the ski the other day and I was the first one to the finish line in that we fact fact <laughs> made right. it to the finish line before everyone else yes yeah <laughs> we just we're just talking facts here um you also set a new record uh six hours and six minutes i believe we did i i didn't really think that that was within the realm of possibility and then my partner tom and i just skied really fast and didn't look at the watch until huh. we got to the end and seriously there we are. Yeah, because we had no idea what the old splits were uh -huh. for the previous record, but I we knew that we really wanted to break it. And yeah, like it's hard to know where you are out in the dark and not knowing what the splits are in any place. So we knew we were skiing really well. And then as we were getting closer and closer to the finish line, I was looking down like, okay, we're probably going to do make a pretty fast time. Uh, but yeah, 606 was not on my radar before the event. Mm -hmm. That's for sure. When I first saw that, <laughs> I my first thought was Cam just kind of, in a way, broke the race. Like there's a midnight start so that, as you said, you know, things don't warm up enough during the day. Yeah. <laughs> and it's like you started at midnight and then I believe still finished in the dark. Yeah, it was pretty dark. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so I was like, huh, maybe, I don't know what we do about this, but like maybe next year, I don't know, you could start at like two or two or three a.m., get a little bit more sleep yeah. <laughs> that night before. And then I, I don't, I don't know, but that was kind of wild when I, when I heard that. Yeah. Well, it's, it's more sleep for everybody. So maybe you're onto something because like they weren't ready at the finish line for us quite yet. <laughs> <laughs> the arch wasn't set up and like, uh, we were passing aid stations that weren't what? staffed yet and like checkpoints that we're supposed to like record like, okay, team 54 is here. Yeah. Okay. Bye. That we just like breezed through because there are no humans <laughs> there because <laughs> it was four in the morning at yeah. 12,000 feet somewhere far away from everything else. Yeah. So, but yeah, maybe if we figured that out, it would be good for everyone's health. So, I mean, talk about the evening itself. It was a gorgeous night, first of all. Yeah, it was a full moon for the race night and like beautiful. It was clear and amazing and a nice temperature. It got a little bit cold and windy up high at times, but 
uh, like I've described it as like, oh, are these perfect conditions? I'm like, this is like as perfect as it can be realistically. Uh-huh. Can't be like, oh, like everything was perfect, but the wind was a little bit in my face yeah. for these few minutes. Like, let's yeah. throw that out the window. And like, it was pretty ideal the other night. How lit up was the terrain? I mean, was that like, was that full moon, do you think, a significant element in how fast you guys were moving? I don't know if it had a huge role to play in how fast we went, but it was definitely more pleasant to be able to like look around yeah. and see where we were because some years you're just looking at like the glowing orb of your headlamp and yeah. just skiing into that glowing orb as hard as you can for the whole night. And when you can like look around and appreciate where you are, it's definitely uh, captures the essence of the race a little bit better. <laughs> yeah. Sure. But I think the things that contributed to speed were more that like everything was nice and frozen over and like a good firm crust to ski on and the descents were in good shape and mm. things like that led it to be fast. The moon was just a, a bonus. bonus. So to you, what are the biggest variables that you look to if it's about putting down a fast time? What, like what's your, what's the number one thing you want? Yeah. I mean, a lot of it is just whether or not you can skate certain flat sections. Like if it snows 12 inches the day before, then you're just going to be like tunneling through the skin track. Right. And sure. The descents will be great and everything's soft and pleasant and quiet. Uh, but on years when we have a day or two of high pressure before the race, like this year, we had 24 hours of dry, warm weather. And when it can get the like snow surface wet during the day and freeze solid overnight, then a lot of those sections you can skate over really fast and maintain a lot of speed and momentum and go quick. Mm-hmm. And it, it's a lot noisier, <laughs> but <laughs> it's a lot faster when you get some, some ice out there. Yeah. So that's your number one. You're basically, you're basically a World Cup alpine downhiller you want to you want a water injected course yeah, yeah exactly <laughs> <laughs> see i'm like the opposite of that yeah. like i'll just go real slow and like take all the like you know fresh powder i can get yeah. you know if i'm <laughs> if i'm uh if i'm touring if i'm on touring equipment that's kind of what i'm looking for yeah. so we're sort of opposites in that way yeah i mean i'd feel that way any other time okay. but if you want me to get to aspen as fast as possible then i call it glazed lightning like give me a, a just the firmest hardest least fun track that you can <laughs> and i'll go really fast <laughs> <laughs> sounds phenomenal i mean like most other people just talk about really how I mean, one, how awesome this event is, but how punishing this event can be. Did you have tough moments this time around or have you been doing this enough now? You are like, dude, I'm so kind of dialed and and saying that, you know, you were fortunate enough not to hit other variables that were sort of beyond your control, I guess. But like, what was the suffering level like? Yeah, well... It's important to remember that the faster you go, the less endurance is required for anything. (laughs) That rings true in all (laughs) elements of life. So, I mean, just being out there for less time is a lot easier. Like that's less time in my boots. That's less time for my fingers to be in the cold air. That's less time for like my water to freeze and my stomach to go wrong and whatever. So it is easier when you're like in that position, but I mean, of course, there's like little things that go wrong just when you're trying to get across this huge course from town to town. But I guess our our really only thing was my partner, Tom, had some water spill on his gloves in an aid station. 
And when you have wet gloves, it, it was three in the morning at that point. We were still climbing to 12,000 feet two more times. And he had to tough that out. <laughs> so, and we had extra gloves with us, but like, we didn't want to take the time to like open the pack and switch them out. And they'd be like big mittens and not very racy. Uh, but that was really our only obstacle was keeping, <laughs> keeping Tom's little fingers. So wait, what exactly off. did you do to remedy this? Or cause what I'm hearing is you were just like, Tom, you'll be fine. Let's keep going. Well, <laughs> no. um, I mean like he uh, put his like mittens on over his gloves or gloves on mittens over his gloves. Gloves okay. have fingers, mittens don't. That's right. So his mittens over his gloves and uh, put a puffy on cause his puffy was easy to access and that, helped him work through it but it was mostly just tom's a freak and doesn't mind a little discomfort and was willing to not <laughs> take away those three minutes <laughs> in the sake of comfort and keep pursuing the the sake of fast instead but yeah we didn't have a lot of obstacles like the course was in great shape we were alone for most of it we did make it to the start line a little bit late and it was kind of like a self-selected start time just was spreading people out this year and we probably started 10 minutes after we intended to. So there was already a hundred plus people on course. So we did some bobbing and weaving for the first couple miles of the race. That was unintentional, uh, but that really didn't slow us down too much either. And there's volunteers out there in the middle of the night, keeping the course in good shape and giving us some human contact to keep us moving. <laughs> and uh, yeah, it was, yeah, not a lot of down moments. It was awesome. And the good news is they didn't start your time. Yeah, correct. Yeah. So yeah. you can actually roll up 10 yeah. <laughs> minutes late and there's not, the only penalty is you might have to yeah. try to dodge some folks and get, yeah. get in front of some folks. Okay. Yeah. But everyone thought we were like doing some secret trick of like wanting to like chase people down. And we were like, no, like that's not what it was. We were just, we were just late. <laughs> just late. <laughs> All it is. Why were you late? What were you doing? Um, you know, I, I'm blaming the fact that we went into a nice warm building near the start and just got too comfortable and we were talking and we we're like, oh, like looks about time to head out. And it just took us longer to get over to the start than we warmth than and we comfort thought. at midnight. You're like, I'm in a perfectly good warm building right now. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I guess that's yeah, part of you is like, you know. Part of my brain is telling me stay in this warm, safe place and don't go fly over mountain passes for 40 miles on ice. Yeah. And it's midnight. Yeah, <laughs> I'm kinda... used to only sleeping at midnight huh, Yeah, personally, but. <laughs> of the three different legs, the, the ski, the bike and the run, do you clearly rank these in terms of your own favorites? Not clearly, but if you pressed me, I love the ski because it's like just the traditional event and it's what like gets the communities out and like people put so much into the ski because there's just so many logistics and things to train for that it's, it's the one that gets the most people excited and it's the most unique because you're on snow and it's dark and yeah, just to like ski from town to town is such a cool idea. And the, the run and the bike are great for different reasons. The run is cool because it's just hard, <laughs> I guess, now that I'm thinking out loud. Um, and you can see everything in the light, which is nice. And the bike's great because you get the, you know, inherent pleasure of riding a mountain bike instead of running and skinning and skating all around. But 
I, I just love the ski. It has a special place in my heart for sure. Yeah. Where have you made the most improvements? And I, and by improvements, do we mean only where have you gotten like the most fast or maybe it's a broader question than that? I don't know, but do you know what I mean? So I'm going to put this in the broadest possible way for, for you to answer, like on the run side, the bike side or the ski side, where have you actually like made the most gains in one form or the other? No, I guess it's been pretty level. Like when I think about it of like my trajectory in these sports, it was kind of shockingly linear over the course of time. Of course, it wasn't that way on a small scale, but like I moved to Gunnison, Crested Butte, not really knowing how to do any of these things and sucked at all of them for a couple of years and then started to figure out like, oh, like I can do these things okay and I really like this and I was riding a lot and running a lot and skiing a lot and I, I kind of slowly realized that I was decent at these things and then slowly realized I could be competitive and then slowly realized I could be competitive at a high level and then slowly realized like the extra little like 1% here, 1% there, things that I could figure out, but it's really all come at the same time of like skills improve, fitness improves, experience improves. And like, there was never any moment of like, oh, like I, I got this now. Like it all happens so slowly, but consistently that, yeah, I think that's the best way to think of it. It's interesting, I guess, if we think about kind of a similar, like tri-sport event, like a triathlon, you know, you'll have some people who are like, I'm horrible in the water right? Like I, it's always my worst thing by far, you know, but I'm pretty comfortable on a bike and pretty comfortable on the run or like pick your, you know, pick your two of the three things. I don't know, rank kind of <laughs> these for me, the way you think about them. Yeah. I guess the ski goes number one, just because like I have so much specific experience for that event that like you can put really good athletes in any other sport into the ski and things go haywire just because there's so many things that can go wrong and skiing's my favorite thing to do and I think that it's just kind of progressed that way as a result and it's a positive feedback loop course and then the run I feel like would be number two then because that's the one that I've done the best in other than the ski like won the run overall a couple times and I guess the last three and the then, last three yeah <laughs> And then the the bike, to be fair, the bike is always the day after the run. Yeah. And some people just bike. So maybe if the order was <laughs> uh -huh. reversed, I'd feel this... like, oh, I love the bike and the run. I always feel terrible. Right. <laughs> um, and yeah, like the bike, I'm like fifth or sixth every year uh, because I just ran to Aspen the day before, partially. That's a, This is very fair yeah. since we're all about facts right now and like... Yeah, if you had to do that run and then the next day bike it, yeah, I would I would fight people that tried to make me do that. Yeah. So, if you're still pulling a fifth or sixth on the bike, and I mean, how like how affected do you feel? I part of what we're doing in this conversation, I'm definitely trying to figure out how like how much of a normal moral human being you are because like I couldn't get on the a bike the next day. I yeah, it's kind think. of funny because like I can't walk 
But once I like get on the bike, oh, I can spin. That's terrible sounding. <laughs> and then just the the worst part is when you have to hike your bike for some of the steep climbs. Cause I'm like pedaling, pedaling, pedaling. Like this is good, but I'm tired. But like I still feel good and I'm having fun. Then I like hop off my bike to push up something and I'm like, oh, like I can't. <laughs> but the by the end of the day, the bla- the bike will blast the run soreness out of your legs, is my theory. And I don't know how it works. But I wake up on the morning of the bike and I can't walk Then I ride home and then I'm exhausted, but like muscularly, everything's okay again somehow. I don't know what it is, but there's something to it. You should okay. try it. Yeah. <laughs> no. I mean, you know, spinning for recovery, like active recovery type of thing, like that kind of makes sense, but I'm not sure that a 40 mile mountain bike ride really fits in yeah you know both of us have a background in kinesiology and you know it doesn't really make much sense to me either but something just happened do you talk to others who are like oh yeah no i feel the same way yeah yeah it's not i think it's there is something to it that's not just me so we'll have to maybe that'll be the next big research project is why riding your mountain bike really hard the day after an ultra marathon is like the future of recovery hmm. oh there's something there <laughs> yeah <laughs> okay let's talk a bit more about your background because if some people didn't listen to our off the couch episode and they're like who is this guy <laughs> that jonathan is talking to talk a bit about yeah i, I mean you you mentioned a bit when you came to gunnison crested butte you really weren't doing any of this stuff but like how did you get swept up into this world and sort of what else does your skin ski and running and bike life look like outside of the Grand Traverse? Yeah, I guess it kind of started as a high school runner. Like that was my thing. That was the thing I loved. I kept having little injuries and realized that I couldn't do it forever because like my Achilles would be sore and then I couldn't be happy. (laughs) And I was like, I can't sustain this. This is bad. Um, But I was already planning on coming out to school here at Western to, to run by the time I had figured that out, so I was like, well, I'm already going to the school, so I'll figure out everything else to do once I get there. And my sister was already here, and she, like we mentioned, was like, are you going to do the Grand Traverse with me? And I was like, oh, okay. I'm like, okay, you're going to join the bike team and join the Nordic team. And like, I figured out that this was the way to like see the new place that I was in and learn all these new things at once and like take advantage of being in a university program that would teach you all these things. So I did and did really poorly at all of them at the same time, but had a lot of fun at all of them at the same time as well. So I I was like legitimately trying not to get last place in like college mountain bike races and trying to get to the finish line of the Grand Traverse. And like I did get last place and did have DNFs in every sport a couple times each. And uh, I think there's just so many good people around and like actual coaches and community members. And it was again, just like the positive feedback loop of like, go for a bike ride. Oh, that was fun. I want to ride more. And then you like, as you get better, things become more fun. So like at some point it turned into like, okay, now I'm like getting top 10 in these college events. Like, okay, now I'm winning some things here and there. And over that six years, it's turned into like ski mo. We'll say ski mo right now is my, like number one thing, I love it. I 
train to race in like the world cups and world championships and do my best there. And then while I'm at home race, whatever's here. So things like the grand traverse and such. And I describe it as like in the winter, I am a skier and in the summer, I still think about skiing, but in the winter, I don't really think about running and biking. (laughs) So when the summer eventually comes, I like reluctantly start to run and bike and then really enjoy those too. So I kind of like run and bike 50, 50, uh, just because I like them for different reasons, like running, I can get up to peaks and into wilderness and like do it in a short amount of time. Uh, but the bike I like did go far and go fast and like the excitement of riding a bike. Uh, and so like I fill the summer in with competitions too, and things like the Traverse and other races and such, but I really look forward to the winter in February and March to do things like world cup races and stuff like the Traverse. Can you say anything more specific then about like just your training? I mean, you know, aside from, well, you know, I run and bike, like you just said, when there's not snow on the ground. (laughs) Um, But like you're either, right, a bit of a freak of nature. Maybe there's a little bit of that. Or you're also, you've just really figured out how to train effectively for you to kind of optimize your ability to go move very quickly in the mountains over a relatively long distance. So talk to me about that and how much have you been changing things, tweaking things over the years versus, I mean, you use the word linear uh, in terms of some of your results in these different events. What's that looked like from a training point of view? Yeah. So, I mean, year round, it's probably about 20 hours of actual training a week and being able to like mix up sports helps a lot too to sustain that. And I think that maybe where I do have a big natural advantage is my ability to like sustain that high level of training and recover and and keep going. Cause like that could also ruin you of like training a certain amount too much. But anyway, uh, like, yeah, a typical week in the winter would be like 40, 50, 60,000 feet of vertical gain on skis and riding some chairlifts too, to get some downhill skills and skate skiing a little bit, just like have ways to mix it up. And then like, of course you tweak things over time of like, Oh, like it's race season. So I'm doing these more specific intervals or like, Oh, this is more of a base building time. I'm doing more volume and big days. I try to have like a 10 to 12 or 13,000 foot day every week. So like once a week, I just go try to crush a big vert day and then like, you'll sprinkle in races all season long and some might be short, some might be long, but that's kind of what the winter evolves into. And then in the summer, it's a lot of like uphill focused running. So like I would never go out and do like a flattish run ever. Like it's always to a peak or at least like on a super hilly route. And then I use the mountain bike to like fill in time that I wouldn't be able to running. Cause like, I just can't run. Like I, I run probably two or three times a week in the summer and then bike the rest. And that like keeps me mentally fresh. It keeps me healthy. And yeah, I'll probably have a similar amount of training time in the summer and, and just trying to like, yeah, sustain a bunch of volume and get a bunch of vertical gain ins that I'm ready for the transition to winter. Mm-hmm. I have to think you have your kind of go-to your, your go-to runs, your go-to bike rides, your go-to ski lines, 
Is that fair? Or are you like, no, I like as much variety as possible all the time. And I think I tend to become a creature of habit. And so like I get to kind of my, my top three backcountry lines or my top three bike rides. I'm hitting those a lot. And then number four and five and six gets a lot less frequent. How are you with respect to the, to the, yeah, the runs or the rides or the or the ski lines. Yeah, I think it's really good for you to make sure you stay in a place where like things aren't too comfortable anyway. And I always say that like doing something unfamiliar is a skill in and of itself, right? Like somebody that rides unfamiliar trails frequently is good at getting to an unfamiliar trail and doing well at it, right? And same thing with any other sport. And so I try my best to make sure I'm doing different things all the time. And of course it's limiting of like the safety component in the winter of like not getting yourself in an avalanche and like needing to go places that you understand the terrain and danger and such. And like, there's just some places that are easier to get to running and biking in the summer that do become more frequent, but I I do my best to make sure that things stay fresh. So whether that's with, Like then my long day, I try to like get out and go somewhere new or just inherently from doing all these different sports over the course of 12 months, then like, yeah, there is a freshness to it there. So like I might ride chairlifts on the same day that I go skate skiing on the same day that I go backcountry skiing, right? Like things will be fresh inherently. But I think too that like the things that I do consistently are like, okay, here's my go-to run. And it's like one 3,600 foot climb and descent. (laughs) And that's probably in like a four mile uh, loop. (laughs) Right. And then same thing with like, okay, in the winter, like, yeah, I try to mix it up. But like my go-to thing is like a thousand meter climb or 3,200 foot climb to like a difficult ski down again and again and again. And like my go-to bike ride is something hard and like so I think that there's a mix there somewhere of like my my everyday thing can be something like unique and challenging. Like people don't usually run peaks can, like every day um, <laughs> or like ski these big vertical amounts. So I try to keep things fresh, but like my go-to items might be leading me in a certain direction anyway. Mm-hmm. How much of a gear dork are you? Like if we're talking about running shoes versus mountain bikes versus suspension on a bike versus skins or, you know, ski boots or touring skis, we've said this a bunch on various podcasts, but I feel like I always want to say this to drive home the point. There are many elite, elite athletes that just aren't that particular about gear. And then there are other elite athletes that are like wildly particular about this stuff. And so none of this is a commentary on like how good somebody is. I just think there's different types out there. And where would you kind of put yourself on that spectrum of being like really particular versus maybe not so much? Yeah. I think there's a place where like it, it's fun and a place where it stops being fun. Mm -hmm. It's like, it's kind of fun to like, okay, I'm going to dial in the tires I like and the skins that I'm using and like the layers I have for this and that and the eyewear I have for this weather and whatever. And like, at some point it's fun to like 
optimize things. And then there's a certain point where it stops being fun. And so I try to be particular to where it stops being fun and then like go out and do it. So like, I don't like messing with my bike a ton. So I might be less particular there, but I kind of like trying to find the perfect skins for certain conditions and wax for certain conditions on my skis. So I might be more particular there, but I think that could be like advice for anybody of like dork out on it until it's not fun and then forget about it completely and go do whatever mm-hmm. you're doing. The thing about really dorking out hard on it too, is if you get into a race or you're just out on a ski tour or a bike ride of any kind, super chill day, if something's a little bit off and then you can't stop thinking about that thing, yeah. your tire pressure's slightly lower than you would want or I don't know. It's just like that stuff can get pretty mental and really kill the day, even when you're not in a race environment and just out trying to have a nice day in the mountains or whatever. And so I think there's, I think there is a lot of wisdom to not getting absolutely wrapped up into like, everything has to be exactly perfect or I'm, or I'm, I might as well not even be out here. Yeah. Or like dork out about it in your garage as much as you feel like. And then like once you're out doing it, then it should be like out of your mind personally. And are you pretty good at that? I think so. Yeah. You've never been in a race (laughs) where you're like, I put the damn wrong wax on. Pretty rarely. Okay. I think because like once you're out executing whatever you're doing, whether it's a race or a day or whatever, like you need to be focused on like what's in front of you and not the gear that's attached to you. So like dork out as much as you want, as much as is fun. And then once you're out doing it, then do what you're doing. I want to ask you a bit about the kind of backcountry ski scene in general, but really more specifically about this term that we're kind of using and not using like the schemo scene. Obviously, Backcountry touring has really exploded and everybody seems to be kind of trying their hand at it. And regardless of what kind of touring gear they're using, some pretty heavy setups, some extremely, extremely lightweight setups. What are you kind of seeing though, or how are you assessing like this, if it's fair to call it like the backcountry phenomenon, maybe you're not paying any attention, but, and then I guess more specifically, like you know, we don't tend to talk that much on Blister about kind of the the schemo, the really lightweight. It's really, really about the uphill. What are you seeing out there? I mean, in a broad sense, people are realizing the things that do attract people to backcountry skiing and human-powered skiing of like people are getting tired of standing in chairlift lines and people are getting tired of skiing the same places over and over again. And people are wanting their own space and quiet for all kinds of reasons these days. And that's maybe like a good blanket statement about like backcountry skiing and schemo as a whole. But I think even within that people are trending lighter and lighter with a lot of things and realizing how capable super light gear can be on downhills. And I'm hearing less and less of like people going into the backcountry focused on like downhill performance too because they're realizing that like the whole experience is important and you can ride light things pretty hard too and 
like that's kind of the same thing with like runners or people that like have tried running and hate it. Like, oh, like running's the worst. Like, yeah, that's because you like go out and run for three miles as hard as you can every time you put on a pair of shoes. And like, it can be like a nice, pleasant experience too. And I think people are realizing like, oh, this light gear, I can like go hike up a mountain and not be in pain and discomfort for the entire time. And it doesn't have to be hard. And I can like enjoy my experience climbing up this thing. And then I get to enjoy the ski back down too. So I think people are definitely realizing, yeah, like the benefits of light gear in all kinds of ways. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think one of the things we certainly try to do here is just make clear or help clarify for people like where the compromises are. So I am 100% personally in the camp of like, I just don't care how long it takes me to go up and I am happy keeping it slow, trying to keep it comfortable right on that up. And because I would rather be going down on heavier stuff, but for somebody who's sort of evaluating the up part of things and the down part of things a bit differently than me, it's like, well, there's never been a better time to be alive yeah. in terms of the gear options out there and the rest, you know, and I think that's rad. And then it's always just going to be the debatable part is like, you know, some people are like, I can't believe you're dragging a setup that heavy uphill. Well, okay, that's relative. And then others are like, I can't believe you're like consistently skiing downhill on a setup that light. How can you even do that? It's like, well, that's relative too. Yeah. And so, you know, and, and really a huge part that I'm sure you would agree with is just getting used to your gear. That's something that because we are testing so many different setups all the time, yeah. we don't we don't have the luxury to be like, well, here's the really lightweight stuff, but we're so accustomed to it, you know, that we know it, it's going to respond exactly like this if you're encountering this type of snow condition or the rest. But yeah. Yeah. I think like it's, yeah, it's great for people to just find whatever's working for them. Like if you're in that camp of like, I'm going to take as long as I want to get up this thing. And I want to, like, I'm doing it for this experience of skiing back down then awesome. And if you're doing it because like, I want to get this awesome workout in and ski this much vertical or miles or whatever it is. And that's great. But I, yeah, I think that people can just figure out whatever is working for them. I just think that there's a lot of people out there that haven't tried light gear. They're like, Oh, I don't really get like the attraction of like these light things and skiing. Yeah. This lighter setup. And I, I think there's an element of just not knowing how easy it can be <laughs> to get up these climbs. Hmm. Yeah. Hmm. So you're giving all the credit to the gear. I'm giving all the credit to the gear. <laughs> See, this yeah. is good. Yeah. <laughs> Perfect. We should swap setups sometimes. And yeah, then maybe I'll be like, sure. wow, I used, I remember when I was impressed with Cam. <laughs> <laughs> Talk to me a little bit about the schemo race side of things. How are we doing as a community, as a culture, as uh, you know, what kind of interest is it? Is it burgeoning on that front? Is it kind of hanging steady? What are you seeing on that front? The race side in particular? Yeah. I know that people are buying more and more yeah. of the light gear and that more and more events are popping up, but it's, it's hard to describe. Like I don't, 
get to a race and see five times more people than I did a couple of years ago. So I wonder if there's a lot of people just out there that are getting into the sport for fitness and getting into the sport for, yeah, just being able to like move lightly and easily wherever they're going. And yeah, there's definitely an upward trend, but I, I don't know if I can see it very clearly. Mm-hmm. Do you have any thoughts about like, well, boy, I sure think this might be a way where we could grow interest in the race side of the sport. What do yeah, you got? I, I mean, I would love for people to realize that like racing doesn't have to be spandex and the lightest gear and like Harvey monitors and like the super intense part of the whole scene. Like you can do races just to like challenge yourself and you can do races just to experience these courses and these communities. Like I think people are intimidated by like the word racing or intimidated mm-hmm. by mm-hmm. putting bib numbers on. And there's a lot of people out there that have a ton of fun, just like going and doing races and chasing their own goals while doing it. Like you don't have to be fast. You don't have to be trying to win things like yeah, racing is just fun. Like going out and competing with friends and doing these things is is fun by itself. This is a fantastic point you make. And thinking about it, it's like the ultra running community has maybe done a better job of driving that home. Yeah. There's a ton of people who are just out, you know, like when I, you know, we think about that space, it is a little more synonymous with like, hey man, it's just a, celebration and I'm out here and who cares about results? That is not the way I think hearing you talk right now, like that's not the way I think about like schemo stuff. And it's like, well, why? What's the difference? Yeah. I mean, I wonder if part of it is like there's races that are long enough that finishing them by itself is an accomplishment, but maybe for a shorter race, like you don't get a ton of satisfaction out of just getting to the finish line of it. Which are we talking about right now? Are you talking about a schemo race? For really either, right? Like if I don't think that a lot of people are signing up for like recreational races that last less than an hour or two, right? Where like, oh, I can sign up for this race that is this hundred miler and like getting to the finish line is this massive accomplishment. Where like, I'm not sure that people feel that way about a schemo race that lasts an hour and a half because then to like have your like objective accomplishment, you kind of have to do it fast, right? Like doing a hundred miles, you can do it as slow as you want. It's like, oh sweet, I finished the race. But with like a shorter event, like going out and doing it slowly might not have the same like objective, like accomplishment to it. What about starting a race at midnight? Yeah, (laughs) I think the Traverse is probably more like the hundred mile run (laughs) world. (laughs) Okay. Yeah. But I think that the sport could definitely benefit from people doing all kinds of events and appreciating it just for the experience of racing and not trying to make an accomplishment out of everything they're doing. What else is on your radar with respect to racing, with respect to other goals? What are you seeing? What are you looking at? I mean, what, what motivates me a lot is the things that I haven't feel like I've figured it out yet in. So like most of the races around the U S like I've won already or like had course records already. But when we go to Europe and do world cups, we still get crushed. It's like, Oh, like I was top 20. This was the best. (laughs) And like, I've gone over there and like 
been 40th ish and then 30 something and then 20 something. And now I'm kind of in that like top 20 world. And so I just feel like there's so much like growth to be had there that that's what really motivates and inspires me. So what I really like, my goals are all centered around like going to Europe at the very highest level and doing the best I can. And then translating that to running races too, or biking races where like I've won all kinds of local things and the Traverse sure like brings a lot of competition from all over, but it still is like our home event. So I want to go do things that like, I know that finishing in like the top five or top 10 is a huge accomplishment. So I'm, yeah, like on a, in any year, like my main focus is doing as well as I can in those world cups. And I'm kind of seeking out like more and more competitive things to stay excited. And we should probably say, cause I don't think we have yet in this conversation, you're 25. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but this is the young side of things. Yeah, for sure. And uh, there's some really good like people in their early and mid 20s over in Europe, but that's where the sport's a lot more developed. And yeah, like, yeah, there's not many people 25 and younger winning these things outright. So yeah, hopefully I do have some good years yeah. ahead of me. That's pretty cool. And what does the race scene look like? I mean, COVID has kind of done a number on, I don't know, pretty much everything, but are we now done with any racing? Are we looking forward to next year and seeing hopefully, hopefully with all the fingers crossed that we can sort of get back to a normal schedule of things? What's that landscape like right now? Yeah. I mean, like this year was a big change because it didn't involve any European travel. And I was like, okay, like find races close to home and challenge yourself as best you can in those ways. So I essentially did all the like classic races close to me and just tried to do as well as I could in all those, which went great. Like I had the course record at the Gothic mountain tour course record at power four with my partner there. And then course record again at GT. So like I, I kind of did that, but it completely glossed over and missed like European racing schedule. So I think we're all really excited to get back over there next year, having two years off in between and seeing how this, yeah, two years of training and two years of building fitness and two years of practicing skills translates to that like better benchmark and milestone of racing over there. Yeah. So yeah, really excited for next season. You ever think about moving to Europe to yeah. train for a season or two or a year or two, or yeah. is that- all the time, I, I just haven't really made it work yet. And um, I think that, yeah, I could definitely see myself doing that. I think it'd be awesome to spend like three, four or five months in a new place and work on a new language and yeah, just be in a different culture and ski a ton and race a ton and bring that experience back here. I think that'd be awesome. Hmm. So back to the Grand Traverse, which, and so again, you started this midnight Saturday night. Yeah. Wrapped up. <laughs> well, actually, I guess technically it would have been 6, 16 a.m. Mountain time with your 10 minute late start. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 6, 16, because you were 10 minutes late off the start, a 6.06 race. Anything else that was kind of standout or what do you remember? This is just a couple days ago, but any other moments or things from this particular run of the race this year that we should know about. Yeah. I mean, I still feel sleep deprived because it's Tuesday. So maybe I'll say something really funny, hopefully <laughs> if, if we get lucky, <laughs> um, but it was just 
like I think it stands out how great the conditions were and like people all missed last year. So nobody's done this yeah. in the last two years. And so I think it was really cool and exciting for everybody to like have missed last year and come back to such a treat of a course. And like, there were a lot of people that want to do their first one last year that rolled it over to this time. And a lot of people that just, yeah, missed out on experiences a year ago. And I think it's really exciting that now we're coming back to the place of like, okay, like we're doing some of the things that we feel deprived of from the last year. And I think that was a big element to it. And that made people really excited at the finish. Yeah. And I, I think too, racing with Tom was awesome. And it was like, he didn't know he was racing until Thursday. <laughs> I think so my original partner, John Gaston, who's a freak at all of this and yeah. has won everything many times. And he had the previous record himself had an old injury come up and couldn't race. And so we were frantically texting people and Tom committed to come over from Utah on Thursday <laughs> for the Saturday night start. <laughs> and just like his willingness to like jump in last minute and go do a race so hard in the middle of the night was super impressive. <laughs> and it was awesome to just share the experience with him. That's awesome. Shout out to Tom. Yeah, that was that was pretty impressive. <laughs> yeah. This is maybe a weird question, but if someone was like, all right, maybe I'd like to try my hand at this Grand Traverse thing. I guess probably what that person would do is just make an easy decision of like, well, I'm most comfortable on AT gear or I'm most comfortable on a bike or I'm most comfortable trail running. So that's the leg I'm going to do. Do you feel like there is like, if you want to step into this, wade into this pool, as it were, are you like, oh, do the run? Yeah, absolutely do the bike. <laughs> the bike. Oh, bike, the bike. Bike, 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 bike. bike. Yeah. Okay. Because <laughs> running is hard and it hurts. Uh -huh. Personally, I don't know. There's some people out there that don't yeah. feel that way, <laughs> but I think running hurts really bad. And skiing, you have to like prevent yourself from getting hypothermia yes. and your water freezing and getting lost in a ground blizzard and your skin's getting iced up and all these other things that can go wrong. But biking, like if you know how to fix a flat tire, you know how to fix a chain, you can climb and you can descend. Like it takes the least amount of time. Like the bike's a, a great, great <laughs> inroads to this. Yeah, okay. for sure. All right. <laughs> yeah. Okay. And it's nice to learn the course in the daytime yeah. to like do the run or the bike. Like, oh, here's where I am. And then when you get to the ski, it's a more comfortable Right. When mm -hmm. you're in pitch black yeah. on most years when there's not a full moon, yeah, I guess. Yeah, totally. Huh. Another cool thing about the race this year is you had a charity component yeah. tied to this. Tell, tell me a bit about this. Yeah. So Living Journeys is a local cancer support organization. So they don't do any like medical treatment or anything like that, but they're a nonprofit to support people in their cancer journey. So that might look like getting them a couple free meals a week or already prepared meals a week, or it might be rides to and from treatment, or it might be financial support for their kids. It might be um, emotional support groups for them and their families. It could be anything like that. And they kind of came up with the idea to do an athlete core. It's kind of a fundraising platform. So having people go out and do these events as like a, Hey, look, I'm doing this hundred mile run, won't you support me in my cause for living journeys while I do it? 
And so I did that for them this year with the Traverse and we threw out a number of $15,000 six weeks ago. And I thought that that was totally unrealistic, but like shoot for the moon. And we had 123 supporters so far uh, and have raised almost $17,000. Dude. And so I've just been blown away that like 123 different times somebody like got on the website and typed in their credit card information and essentially like looked at somebody fighting cancer and said like, here's a hand, like, let me help you out. 123 times. And that's the coolest thing. And so like that made the whole race a totally different experience this year of like, I want to train to do my best because it'll get people excited about living journeys. I want to prepare all my gear and get lots of sleep and like get prepped for the race as best as I can for living journeys. And it was just such a cool experience to see 123 people rally behind this cause. That was amazing. Hmm. It's such a beloved organization around here. They do great work and it's, that's really cool. I hadn't, I hadn't heard the results. Um, And my understanding is you still have, you're still accepting donations or tell me what, what you're doing here. Yeah. I mean, we'll leave the link up uh, for another couple days just because there's some like post-race excitement for sure. So if anyone listening to this is interested, you can go to livingjourneys.org slash cam, C-A-M. Um, and check out the website there. And I'd love it if people could help do a like post-race push because there's really no, like their living journeys is asked for a lot more than they're able to give anyway. So they have to turn down clients requests for things all the time. And there's certainly no waste of money with this fundraiser. Yep. Super cool, man. It's great to have you back. It's just always fun to catch up. I don't think you know this because I think this happened after we had recorded our off the couch conversation, but one of my go-to rides, you know, sort of in the summer and fall after a work day is like sneaking out while there's still enough daylight yeah. or whatever. Um, if I'm really a little bit pressed for time, like often just pedal up, do like a West side to happy hour to yeah. upper loop down into town. Perfect. Yeah. And there was a given day where I came out, emerged out of the sort of rock garden treat in section of upper loop where we yeah. open up into meadows and it just was like a gorgeous night like we often get. And so I kind of pumped the brakes and was just kind of like taking it all in. And you like, <laughs> I heard somebody coming oh, up. No. And I don't it was, like where this is going. No, and <laughs> yeah. I heard somebody coming up and I got this very polite, like, Hey man. And like, excuse me or something like that. And I was just like, oh, and you were just like bombing by. Yeah. And I felt I was one is like, well, wait a minute. That's not fair. I was like taking in. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> totally. But it was kind of fun. And I was like, oh, well, there goes Cam training nice. ride. Yeah. And uh, yeah, you weren't going slow. So uh, yeah, I um, mean, fun is fast for me. I'm glad I was polite while I did it. You're very always, polite. Like I, I have never really heard any stories of like, oh yeah, this like jerk, jerk cam. Yeah. But every time someone starts a story like that, I'm like, oh my God, <laughs> this what is going to be the what one. I do. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, no, but anyway, yeah. it, it's, it was just kind of fun because have these conversations, you're doing these really cool things. You've, you've talked about really well, like the way you train and how you're approaching it all. And I was just out on my like typical after work 
yeah. ride type of thing. And it's, it's like, like, wait a second, I could have held him off, I swear. <laughs> yeah, if I would have known, yeah. I would definitely not have like stopped to take in yeah, the lovely totally. the lovely sunset. But anyway, it's it's fun though that that kind of thing happens around here. And totally, we've got yeah. a number of those folks in this valley, as you know, that you're out on a your normal ski tour or whatever. And it's like, Oh, there goes Dave Weens or yeah. Stevie Kramer or any number of folks that are, uh, yeah. My, my joke is always like, you don't know whether or not you're the best athlete in that aisle of the grocery store. <laughs> it's like when you're walking through the grocery store, like the person grabbing their like box of crackers in front of you could like destroy you and whatever they like to do. <laughs> so that's always my joke. Except like, it's true. Yeah. Yeah. Totally. Yeah. The way, the way it goes for me is I'm certain I'm not the yeah. best athlete yeah. in this aisle right yeah. now. There's the likelihood is very, very low. It's uh, the thing I love about this place is there's a lot of unbelievably humble badasses mm -hmm. and there's some other communities that kind of, you'll find a similar thing too, but man, this sure is one of them. So I'm, I'm honored to be passed by any you know, any of the number that we have here, including yeah. you, uh, <laughs> oh, but, thanks. but maybe next time I'll, I'll yell and see if I can get you to actually stop. Good. Okay. Yeah. Sounds yeah. good. <laughs> Dude, on that note, I'm actually going to let you go get on the mountain. We'll be doing this again. And, uh, it's always fun to like catch up and connect and see how you're thinking about things. And, um, and I'm super hopeful and looking forward to you, ramping things up on the world cup stage i'm gonna stay tuned on that front for sure yeah thanks i'll uh i'll stay motivated to stay relevant enough yes. <laughs> to come back yeah you're like, <laughs> like yeah oh if i do well enough then jonathan will invite me back <laughs> you're welcome anytime but uh these 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 honestly just kind of end up providing good excuses to like check back in, you yeah, know? totally. <laughs> and dude, we didn't even talk about, I mean, the stuff you're doing with the Adaptive Center and you're yeah. doing a bunch of other really cool stuff beyond even the things we've talked about here. And so, uh, appreciate everything you're up to. I appreciate you having me. It's always fun. Yeah, man. Chatting with you. Well, go get on the mountain and we'll talk again soon. You got it. Well, that's it for this edition of the Blister Podcast. And if you are enjoying these conversations, we'd encourage you to subscribe to the Blister Podcast leave us a nice little rating or review in Apple Podcasts and tell your friends about the show. I also want to say thanks to Cam for the conversation. Thanks to Taylor Ahern for producing this episode. And thanks to you for listening. From all of us here in Gunnison and Crested Butte, please take good care of yourself and everybody else. And we will talk to you again real soon.